This investor did end up ghosting us, disappeared. We couldn't close the round without, you know, filling that extra gap. And then it was the holiday and everyone was offline. You know, I think there was a real moment there where it all could have just gone away. This is Funded, a show where founders who raised millions in venture capital share the gritty side of what it actually took to get that money in the bank. I'm Jason Ye. Not too long ago, I was trying to get my ideas funded. And back in the day, I was a VC listening to founders pitch me for money. Halloween is supposed to be the spookiest holiday, right? But if you're a founder, any holiday break can be harrowing because deals have a way of dying during those times. Today, we're going to get into why, why fundraising has a natural cycle to it, what times of the year have been best to close deals, and which months are dead zones. Two months used to be the yardstick for a fast raise, but now two weeks is the new industry standard for a quick deal, and it's getting even shorter in the current crazy market. One way to explain that trend is that pressure drives the fundraising machine. Founders are giving investors less time to think over deals because investor competition is at an all-time high, meaning investors know if they don't act fast, they could lose out on a deal. When the heat is on in a process, founders have the upper hand. But if a process stalls, as it normally does during the holidays, suddenly the roles reverse, which is what Emily Rasmussen, founder of Grapevine, learned when she tried to raise money for her group charitable giving platform right before Christmas. But first, we started with what made her take a risk on founding Grapevine in the first place, her interest in philanthropy and mission-based businesses. Just growing up, I've always been interested in just mission-driven work and organizations. And so I think it's just kind of been there for a long time. Um, and then I actually, so in a prior life, I was a ballet dancer. Um, and so was doing that professionally and decided to make a pretty big switch when 9-11 happened and just felt like I'd always been interested in doing something um, more international and, and I thought more in the diplomatic space. So decided that that was the right time to, to make a switch and explore that space. So went to school, went to college and spent some time exploring economic development work, diplomatic work, spent a little time at the UN and thought that I really wanted to be in that diplomatic world. But when I was at the UN, I actually learned about microfinance and just was really inspired by this model of community-based kind of giving and investing in local communities to help um, provide opportunities for people all over the world that didn't necessarily have access to resources um, in the same way that other communities did. So I thought that was a really interesting model and decided I wanted to explore that a bit more. Spent a couple of years after that in India helping to build a microfinance program there. And at that time, Kiva um, was coming onto the scene and really taking off, which is a kind of tech-enabled um, uh, platform for microfinance. And uh, then Kickstarter was about to launch. And so it was just, it was this kind of early stage of crowdfunding that was really inspiring. It felt like tech was increasing access um, to this model that I was 
building on the ground, you know, in India. And it felt like, wow, if we could, if we could do this, if we can open up this opportunity globally through technology, that would be amazing to unlock additional resources and help get those um, resources to communities. So I didn't know the full picture of the story, but it, it sounds like you have been exposed and, and deep in sort of the impact world for mm-hmm. a number of years, right? And sometimes when I see the background of working in impact and you know international experience, uh, the transition to going to business school is about like, how can you be a better manager? How can you be better at like increasing the impact that you have? And so you ended up going to Harvard Business School. Was that sort of the background or thought process you had when when you first thought, hey, business school would be an interesting path for me? Because not everyone from that world decides to, to go down the sort of business school path. Sure. I mean, it, it certainly was, uh, I wasn't sure that it was the right path. So, you know, I, I definitely was thinking about it as an option, but then wondering if it was the right option for me. I think ultimately what ended up happening is I joined a a consulting firm here in New York that was building microfinance programs globally. And as part of that work, the founder of that firm was an HBS alumna. And so I got to work closely with her. And then through that work, we actually engaged groups of HBS and other business school students to go do field um, research with us and compile those learnings into recommendations for companies around the world. And so I got to participate in a bunch of these these trips and work with a bunch of these MBA students and just really saw how that skill set was super valuable and yeah, and how it could really be applied to the sector that I cared about. So that for me made it really clear that this was something worth doing. And I think the other thing for me was just that I I still felt really passionate about this technology coming into this space of community-based finance but I didn't exactly know what that meant. I didn't know how to think about something and I didn't see the thing that I like wanted to go do in the world yet. So it wasn't like, oh, I see that company or I see that job, I'm gonna go after that, what's the path? It was more like amorphous than that and an idea and I felt like I needed more skills and resources to help me think about how to create something. Um, That was the thing that I wanted to do. I wonder when you started your company, did you think this was going to be a venture-backed company, something that you wanted to scale? You know, I think from the beginning, I wanted to build a venture scalable business. That was part of my own personal interest. I think there was a question whether or not that was something that I could do in this space that would make sense, right? And so I don't think I even knew the question to that. I think that was part of the exploration in the early days. Is there something that we can build that would be meaningful in this space? Yes, I knew that there was. Is there a venture scalable business that I could build? Yes, I knew that there was. Are these two things you know, possible in one entity? That was unclear. I think you raised a little bit of money to start doing exploration work, right? But at some point you went out to raise your formal pre-seed, which I, I know you, you raised sometime last year. Do you remember that period of time and that exploration? Yeah, so I feel like there were hints along the way and it just felt different than the earlier days. And it started to feel like, okay, we're on to something. And basically when we first set out, we were focused on this collaborative giving concept, but we thought that the collaboration should happen between experts and donors. And 
we really explored that and we kept trying to get that to work and we got so much positive feedback from people because especially early days, people want you to succeed. And if you're trying to do something that makes a difference, of course they do. But it wasn't actually translating into engagement, into donations, into you know the metrics that we cared about. But what we were hearing is that donors wanted to collaborate more with each other as well. And that was something that we'd always thought that we would want to explore as part of this, but it, it didn't feel like the thing. But we, so then we, we pivoted and we started focusing more on that. And it, fairly early days of that, actually, a few giving circles, um, these like offline co- community groups that were pooling donations and trying to collaborate together, discovered us and reached out. And so that was the the earliest sign that, okay, they're reaching out to us and telling us that what we're building resonates and they need it. And also telling us, can you also build this, this, and this? And so it started to become a much more clear path of what we could build that would be useful for someone that was already trying to do this. And so that was an early sign that really led us to, okay, let's just focus on this community. And then what happened is as we kept doing that, we pulled in a few other people um, but we officially launched publicly on our site in March, March 31st of 2020. Crazy timing, looking back on it. Yeah, we, we thought for a little bit, you know, this COVID thing is kind of becoming a thing. Maybe we should pause and push our, push our launch back a couple of weeks. So glad we did not end up doing that. We'd still be waiting. But yeah, so then we launched and it was just, it was crazy. We had a donation ping set up. So every time a donation comes in, it pings us on Slack. So we always kind of have a sense of what's going on. Suddenly my phone was pinging me like all through the night, keeping me up. And um, it was just, we had so much inbound traffic. We didn't know where it was all coming from. And it was just a really kind of crazy, exciting, wild time. Um, So that's when, and we had... We had just kind of, you know, COVID had just hit. I'd just gone back to California to be with family. And it had just sort of been this really interesting moment with the company where we went, wow, we might be really scaling back and kind of slowing down here, given everything that's going on in the world and our own runway. But then this thing just started taking off. And so we were running as fast as we could. As you started thinking about talking to investors, like institutional, formal investors about putting venture capital dollars into a company like Grapevine. What does it feel like to be working in the nonprofit space, charitable giving, or telling the story that you're going to be a big business? Is that something that you know you had to wrap your own head around, or was it like an obvious thing that everyone is running into? Like wanted to kind of hear your commentary around that part of the story. <laughs> it's definitely a challenge, um, an extra layer to the fundraising challenge, I should say. For me, it was always clear that there's an opportunity to build a really big business and that these things are not in conflict, that actually the whole way that we've built this business has been around the bigger we grow, the more impact we have, right? And the more money we can make. And so it's it's not in conflict. And like many spaces, it has been built for a very small, narrow segment of the population, you know, so unsurprisingly, largely models in the philanthropic space have been built to support white wealthy men in how they like to give. And so there's a huge portion of the population, both existing donor population and potential donor population that that misses. So for me, it was always obvious there is an opportunity. 
far less obvious, I think, to, to VCs. So making that case has been interesting. And it usually starts with, no, we're not a nonprofit. <laughs> yes, we are a for-profit company. I think the other thing that, that I've realized in the, the VC space that was kind of difficult for us early on is that there had been some significant investment, um, sort of a previous phase of, of venture investing in a few companies uh, where people put a lot of money into causes um, was one, and there are a couple of others. And so, you know, I think those were largely, they were just very different plays. And I think people were a little bit um, skittish because of that. Um, what I do think has happened, though, is the nonprofit industry is, I think, venture investors have had to sort of look to other spaces and um, just expand, I think, their their way of thinking about what is investable and where is their opportunity. Um, I think they have started to look at the nonprofit sector again. And so when I went out to fundraise um, this time, it I had talked to some investors a couple years prior just as I was thinking about going into this sector and it was very cool. Um, But these conversations, I I found people to be much more curious and open, even if not like fully, you know, understanding the opportunity yet. I think the difficulty that you have with the underlying industry that you serve, just having the headline of nonprofit, like is, is a bit jarring or not jarring, but if you don't think about this space, your mind wouldn't necessarily go to, oh, it's a big industry. Your mind goes to, it's not about making money. And my expectation is that you're, you were servicing such a small small industry and it says nonprofit, but that just isn't the case. And it's like, you've obviously become good at like quickly turning heads around like what you're doing. You know, you know the numbers that they're out. And in terms of where you went from there, when you thought about preparing, who were the types of investors that you went after? Did you think I have to go after a specific type of investor or were you challenging yourself to say like, I think any investor that, you know, broadly invests at this stage would be interested. Like, how did you find your way? So I did target a couple of types of groups. Being a female founder, I felt, okay, there are a bunch of these uh, funds that are focused on female founders and supporting that segment, so I should add them to my list just for that fact. Then being in the impact space, there are some funds that have said that they are interested in impact, that's what they're focused on, so I wanted to make sure to include those. Although I will note that it was more about VC funds that had an impact lens or angle than it was impact investors or impact first funds. And that's because I I have found that it is quite difficult actually to raise money from impact focused funds, especially for the work that we're doing because we're relatively impact focused agnostic, if you will. We're facilitating donations to all different types of causes. And a lot of impact investors have very specific angles on what they're trying to accomplish and different, you know, verticals of impact. So anyway, so I did not include those. Um, but then otherwise it was just who who's a great pre-seed early stage investor. I just want all of those generalist investors on the list. And we'll see from there and building a big list. (laughs) It sounds like you went through an evolution that I see a lot where it's like, my business is very narrowly X, you know? And so maybe I should only talk to investors that have done that kind of deal before. But really the challenge is, can you make your story really exciting to any type of investor that likes great businesses, which I think a lot of people miss their first time out. 
also where do you fit in their portfolio? Because if someone is focused on an area too much, right, then obviously they might have a competitive company in their portfolio. And so I did find some traction in making the case to more generalist investors that seem to say, hey, you need to think about us not as this nonprofit play, but as this is an underinvested space because people have been skittish about it. And so if you're smart and you're looking for an opportunity, then this is a good space for you to be looking at. And you obviously don't have anything in this space. Yeah, I mean, I think it was trying to also just find, like create that bigger list and educate those investors and make the case for how this fits for them or should. When we come back, an investor goes from hot to cold, just as life moves indoors for the holidays. I spend most of my days one-on-one with entrepreneurs, helping them understand strategies that make a difference in fundraising. Some things vary from founder to founder because not everyone's story is the same. One thing I'm super consistent about, no matter who the founder, is making sure they send their decks and materials using a document sharing tool. And for that, I always recommend DocSend. DocSend lets you know what's happening with your deck after you send it along with real-time analytics and notifications. Did the VCs actually open it? What slides did they spend the most time on? And if you think it got shared with the wrong people, or maybe you made a mistake and sent it too quickly, DocSend lets you control access and make updates to content even after sending. Sign up for a free two-week trial at docsend.com funded. That's D-O-C-S-E-N-D.com funded. Okay, back to the show. Any like challenging times come to mind? Any any uh, remarkably like interesting stories about the hard times? I think I think it's all about the hard time. <laughs> <laughs> Not life in general. <laughs> I mean, it's your first time fundraising, uh, doing a formal institutional round, correct? That's right. Yeah. What was the worst experience you had, <laughs> especially in those early days? Oh, so there are a couple couple of moments I would say that that sort of that jump out. One, I felt like our fundraise was moving along pretty well and, and um, we were getting some traction. Um, and we did end up getting an offer that was great and came through kind of in a reasonable time. So it felt like, oh, wow, we're, you know, we're moving along. We got term sheet. But then we kept running into these challenges around the end of year, honestly, with timing and holidays and things. And so just some little hiccups there that made me nervous. But it seemed like everything was still coming together and we we hit our uh, the amount that we wanted to hit. But then suddenly like this last investor just, there, there kept being another like reason that it wasn't moving forward or another call that you needed to have or another thing that needed to happen. And it just started to feel like, okay, I felt like this was all wrapped up. There was a, a commitment there, a verbal commitment, um, but it suddenly started to feel like this might not be wrapped up and here we are heading into the end of the year. And if we don't get this done before the holidays, it felt like everything was going to maybe just go away. Um, yeah, because time kills deals, right? Right. Yeah, you were the one who told me that deals need momentum. So yeah, so that was a, a moment where started to get really nervous, thought we had it wrapped up and we, we turned out we did not. Uh, this investor did end up 
ghosting us disappeared. We couldn't close the round without, you know, filling that extra gap. And then it was the holiday and everyone was offline. And so, you know, I think there was a real moment there where it all could have just gone away. But then after after the holidays, start of the new year, kind of went back out to some of the people who had demonstrated interest, but uh, that we were moving a little bit too quickly for there at the end of the year. And there was still interest there. was able to kind of reframe the the conversation to not be, uh, no, we failed to close our round at the end of the last year, like I told you we were going to, and um, just said we decided to extend it. And it actually turned out to be a good thing ultimately for us. One, because that investor is not part of our our um, uh, group at this point, and I'm I'm happy for that. Learned a lot during that process. But then also it opened us up to this other time where suddenly there was more money in the market, it seemed. There was more energy and momentum. Things were moving quickly. And before you knew it, we were oversubscribed. And then we were going through this amazing phase of trying to decide who to let in and how much money to take and how much dilution we were open to and all of that you know, stuff that was still a challenge, but a much better challenge than just trying to close the round. And so many times fundraising, it's you're either dying of thirst or you're drowning. There's like no <laughs> in between, you know, and you're like, oh my God, if I could just do, and then all of a sudden you have to decide who gets in. I love it when founders share these stories because when it, when they happen to people, it like, it feels like I can't believe this is happening to me. Like I'm the only person that would go through this. But if I were to summarize what you shared, it was, you were executing the fundraise the way you should and, and people were committing and you were about to get to that final number where you could close everything up. And for one reason or another, even though you had a verbal commit, someone was in, rounded out the round, they start dragging their feet. They start being unresponsive and, and your spidey sense starts tingling of, oh no, this is not good. And you're right, you know, it's not good. The more an investor is given time to think, you know, they, they're they just given so much time to decide why they shouldn't do deals. Time kills deals, momentum gets them done. And what you're telling me is that you ran into the end of the year when everything closes down, especially in this period of time, it's like holiday season. And if we agree that investing is all about momentum and signaling and what the market believes is happening, you had to go tell all the investors that said they were committing to like make sure that they'd stay committed and like you needed extra time to close this out and go out and try to find more money from people that knew you had been raising before. And it's like this game of making sure everyone knows. No, it's it's not because somebody got cold feet and because maybe they think something's bad. It's because there's new opportunity and oh my gosh, like, you know, we want actually to bring more people in. And so um, I just wanted to reframe that because that is a, it's a really challenging thing to go through and for you to come out the other side, the way you have is, is great to hear. And I think it's a good transition into my preferred question or my favorite question, which is, do you remember when the final check came in and when you like, you knew it was done. Like, was there a moment that you realized like you had done it, you had, you'd finished? I think it was more a feeling of this could be it, you know, because we still had money on the sidelines that wanted in. And there was a question of, are we going to accept some extra money? And we had some strategics that, you know, we, we really wanted on board and we were trying to figure out how to make it work. But um, there was definitely that moment where we got that last big uh, transfer of funds and I saw them in the bank account. And I was just like... <laughs> 
it was just relief. It did at that point it didn't matter if anything else came through, if anything else, you know, if we never even talked to anyone else that we had been talking to. It was just we were good and we had the money we needed and we could we could build. Yeah, where where were you? Do you remember? I was at my mom's place, was staying with her at the time during COVID. I was in the living room and I was just I remember I was um <laughs> refreshing the uh my bank account on uh <laughs> on line and uh yeah because they said that they were transferring the money and and this last big check just came in so quickly i pitched them on a friday morning first pitch on a friday morning had been introduced to them via email earlier that week pitch went well they invited me to their partner meeting on monday two days later pitched the partners on monday and i had an offer monday afternoon and then we negotiated a bit back and forth over the next couple of days. And then they had the money to me, I think by the end of that week. So it all happened so fast, but it kind of felt amazing. And also like this, this can't be possible. This is, you know, it was just too good to be true so quickly and coming together. And anyway, so once I finally saw the money in the account, I believed it. <laughs> yeah. And how long did that feeling of like, amazing, this is going to be great last like the next six months or the next six minutes? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, of course, then it just opens up all the other problems. Okay, okay. you know, what's next? <laughs> Where do we go from here? Right. No, but I think more than six minutes. It, it had been a long, it had been a long road. It was a relief. I think it was at least a good weekend where it was just like, can take this off our plate now and refocus. One thing that I wanted to pull out of there, which is an extreme example, but the speed at which that that check came in, of introduction to great meeting to quick diligence and negotiating to money. I think it gives you a really pure window into what actual investor interest looks like. You know, if you think this is something I wanted to pull out for other people, um, which is this idea that early on when you're fundraising, a lot of people might have said, Oh, like, <laughs> Emily, like, I, I like this. This is great. And honestly, even that, that one investor that kind of verbally, kind of verbally committed, do you feel like you have a better filter for knowing when a conversation is actually like, you know, blowing smoke up your ass and trying to be nice or actual interest? Is, that, is, is there a line drawn in the sand now in your head? Yes. <laughs> and this is something where I used to think, oh, if I follow up right away, that will make a difference. You know, all these little things that you stress about in the process, if only I'd done this. And there are several moments too where I pushed some investors because I said, oh, well, we, ha we only have this much space and we need an answer by next week. And then they came back, I'm sorry, it's just too fast. We're just not going to have time. And I really, I, I, I felt that maybe I'd mishandled that. Yeah, I thought maybe I'd push them too hard. I pushed you like them beat out. yourself up about and it. And then right? now having gone through this, the couple of um the couple of big investors that really came in just moved so quickly and definitively. It was never a question to me whether they were interested. Um they always made it clear that they were interested and they were always the ones pushing forward for the next conversation or the next step. Yeah, very big difference. Awesome. Well, look, I think the path that you went through and I really have enjoyed watching the growth of Grapevine because I know based on the stories I've heard about how big of an opportunity this is as a real business, but the fact that you are building the tool set to make giving happen so much more easily is such a cool thing to see. Not everyone is is doing NFTs and art-based stuff, but like 
we're working on technology that that helps give back. So exciting to hear that and see that happen. I wondered if there were a few things that you picked up in this last fundraise that you would share with a younger version of yourself to make sure that uh, you know Emily from 2019 get come, getting ready to fundraise would be better equipped and and ready to to take on the fundraising world. Um, any any pieces of advice? Well, I had some great pieces of advice going into it that I, I'm glad that I had. You know, one is just run a process um, <laughs> that it's really a game changer and really um, trying to keep things uh, as tightly um, run as possible so that you don't have enough time to stress about each per individual meeting and you're just moving quickly and there's a scarcity in your time and energy that requires you to be efficient and thus um, the investors to feel that and to be efficient. I think that was really helpful advice. Another piece um, of advice that I think really proved out for me was just that this is a conviction game. And so at the end of the day, you just need to, you know, to go in and be, it's, it's all about confidence and, and projecting that and, um, I think it can be really hard to keep that up because every day you're told no and all the reasons why what you're doing isn't going to work. And so even those of us with the most confidence, it can be shaken a bit through the process. But one thing that I did start to do um, that I found very helpful and, and I guess would be a piece of advice I'll give myself um, or would have given myself to do from the start is just a little bit of like journaling in the morning on to recommit to the conviction and why this is going to work why this makes sense mm. and also setting a bit of an intention about how you intend to show up that day um, and how you're going to be in those meetings uh, you kind of i think have to play a role sometimes when you're not feeling it you still have to show up that was my conversation with emily rasmussen the founder of grapevine a SaaS platform powering the future of group-based charitable giving When we come back, my producer Olivia searches for a new apartment, and I explain why her hunt for the perfect spot is not unlike an investor searching for the perfect deal, where a little time to think things over can turn a yes into a no. Early on at my last company, we had the chance to sell into a large public company, but ran into a wall. They wouldn't work with us unless we were SOC 2 certified. We really tried for weeks to get something done. We were Googling how to get SOC 2 certified and interviewing expensive consultants. But in the end, we abandoned the deal because it was too distracting. So when I learned about Vanta, a company that was just backed by Sequoia, used by hundreds of SaaS startups to get SOC 2 certified, I was so annoyed. I mean, I really wish they had been around back then. Vanta makes it super easy to get a variety of certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, the certification we needed to get, and HIPAA. They integrate with your cloud provider and other tools you already use to automate the super complex and time-consuming process of preparing for an audit. Anyway, if you'd like to drop a months-long process down to weeks like I would have back then and actually sign those major contracts, you should check out Vanta. Also, I'm really happy to share that listeners of Funded get hooked up. You all can get $1,000 off your service by going to vanta.com slash funded. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash funded. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so it is the holidays, and I was wondering... 
today if we could talk about the cycle of fundraising because you and Emily mentioned that a lot of deals die around this time of year. And that kind of made me wonder, well, is there a time when they usually flourish? And so I was wondering if you could just kind of walk me through if the holidays is when things normally die, is there a period when things normally flourish or not? I mean, essentially, historically, any large vacation time, so end of year, uh, Christmas, New Year's, were really bad times to fundraise because there's this concept of momentum and its impact on fundraising because as you're raising money, if you're doing it successfully, you're getting people excited and they're reacting very quickly to what's around them. They're reacting to the last conversation they had with you. They're reacting to a diligence call that they had. Um, They're reacting to maybe a news article that was written about you. And as that momentum is pushing them, they're going to try to make a decision to invest. The flip side of that is if anything pauses them or allows them to just live with their own thoughts and think about all the ways that a deal or a company could fail, just the more time you give an investor to do that, the more opportunities they're going to have to say, you know what, like I have other deals that might be better and I thought of something that might not be great. So historically, anything that would pull an investor away from looking at a deal would be a bad time to raise. So for Emily, she was going through these conversations in December, like we are now. And as they were hitting the Christmas and end of year season, investors were stepping away to be with their families, to travel, etc. Now the flip side of that is when investors come back from these vacations, they're energized, they're ready to look at deals, and they want to start like actually getting their teeth into things. So the flip side would be any time after a, a down period or a vacation period was a great time to raise. So like spring and spring and fall then? Yeah, spring and fall are great. Um, actually coming back from the New Year's uh, is great. So sort of mid-January is when people start picking up momentum. This is a pretty granular question, but why is there less momentum during these summer vacation periods? Is it just that I guess maybe people are entering negotiations and like if the investor starts to sit on a counter offer or something for too long, um, it just maybe like loses its appeal. Like, is it because a lot of it maybe rests on risk and impulse and just like impulsively being like, yes? Or is it also that this whole industry of like, news articles and like water cooler conversation and like uh networking emails and stuff is kind of out of commission like help me explain on a more or help me understand on a more granular level where the momentum is dying sure Um, i think it's probably more the first thing you mentioned which is the fact that investing is a very like gut feeling based thing so even with numbers i say this a lot even if you're able to show me numbers, none of those numbers can be extrapolated to infinity. They're just sort of um, specific points in a story. And it's up to me as an investor to decide whether or not I think the whole story makes sense. And so let's say the cadence goes like this. Olivia, you get introduced to me on a Monday. Uh, We have our first conversation on a Wednesday. I make a call to your last boss on a Friday. We have a second call 
on you know week after our first call on the next Monday and I'm getting excited. I'm like, okay, you know, she tells a great story and we had one great call. You know, there are some questions, but I feel like other people are looking at the deal too. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. interest around this. I need to make a decision. Oh, so it's like competition. Yep, and pressure. And then let's say all this is happening and it's December 20th and I'm like, I'm sorry, Olivia, I have to leave with my family uh, to my in-laws in upstate New York. We're going to have to pick up the conversation again in the new year. Now, I've taken a step away from considering you, Olivia. Uh, In the meantime, other people have been sending me deals. And then I'm like, you know what? I was like a little bit concerned about that one thing she said about the market. I kind of don't really agree with that. And there's just more time to stew on the reasons why you wouldn't do a deal. Um, So if that timing lines up to break the momentum and then come the new year, we have to talk again and we're like, are we still interested? By the way, like, did anyone else do the deal? All that momentum, all that pressure, all that perceived interest from other parties is gone. And now we have to start all over again. Whereas if that timeline had started, say, January 15th, and we were able to keep going and keep going, and then we had our second meeting, and then you as the entrepreneur were able to say, hey, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Jason, and your firm. We're going to make decisions the next week. We'd love to know uh, if we want to continue this conversation and get serious about a term sheet. Then it's like, I've, I've thought about all these things, and you're like, you know what? I love the story. I love Olivia. Let's do this. Like That's actually how investing happens. Um, so we always try to maintain that pressure and momentum and holidays or any sort of unplanned trips or things can, that can break that. This is so interesting because it really reminds me of, um, my apartment search right now. As you know, I took a new job and I'm going to be moving to DC. Actually, I don't know if you knew that. I think you knew. Yeah, I'm moving to DC. I mean, I knew you got the new job and I was excited about this conversation to hear about that. You know, I'm originally from Virginia. and Oh my gosh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so I can help you think about it. Yeah, I actually, I should show you these apartments I'm thinking about, but it reminds me a lot of my apartment search because this is obviously happening in the same season. And it's interesting because There's this one apartment that I found that is really close to where my new office is going to be. I was like ready to act immediately when I saw it. I thought it was perfect. And then kind of like Thanksgiving happened and it's been a few days. And now I kind of just like, I started to kind of look at what else was out there. And I'm like, is it that good of a deal? I don't know, perspective, a little bit of perspective has really shaken it up. And also I'm keenly aware that as a renter, I have a lot of leverage right now because it is, it's a dead period, I guess, for a lot of things. Like it's a mm-hmm. dead period for rentals, I guess. And so I just, I'm kind of like, maybe, you know, I could get a nicer apartment and then just like negotiate yeah. down the rent. So it really has you know, kind Olivia, of- Olivia, th- yeah. let's keep going. Let's keep oh, going okay. with this analogy because <laughs> I, I want to pull something else out there. Uh, first of all, I'll say, that the fundraising dynamic is so similar to a lot of sales competitive dynamics. They have different nuances, but a lot of the core dynamics are the same. So let's talk about this apartment search. And the first apartment you saw, or this apartment you're talking about, 
you thought was actually kind of interesting, right? Yeah. And you were excited about it. You almost did it. Super excited. Yeah. What if this happened? What if, as you're thinking about doing it, a friend of yours who lives in DC goes and looks at the listing and she says, huh, I love that neighborhood. And this is the, you know, that block that is on, it's on is up and coming. A lot of people want to move there. I think that looks great. Yeah. She doesn't even actually go see the place. She just kind of looks at the details and says a couple of things to you. How's that going to impact you when you think about whether or not it's an apartment for you? Obviously, I think that would really like seal the deal, which, okay, I'm so sorry to interrupt your flow, but if I'm going to be fully honest, and I didn't really piece this together, but what obviously what actually happened is that I basically had time to do due diligence. Like I was ready to freaking sign a lease. And then the owner of the apartment did something really nice, which is that she said, would you want to talk to the current tenant? And I did. And I feel like this might have come up on this podcast before. I'm really afraid of cockroaches. And so I asked, I talked to the current tenant and I was like, are there any bugs? And she was like, um, I mean, sometimes I see roaches and it was kind of a problem over the summer. And so now that I've done this, like had time to do this background check and kind of like am totally reevaluating it. Whereas Initially, just based on the pictures, I was like totally ready to go for it, just over like a bird's eye view snapshot. This also is a great analogous point to make because, I mean, this is perfect. So let me just say this. The cockroach problem you're talking about (laughs) is something that exists in a lot of apartments, right? And it's actually a very solvable problem, right? Oh my God, you you think so? you, You get an exterminator. You get exterminators, they treat it and it's gone, right? And in this in a similar vein, there are there are small problems that like are not the thing that actually makes a company hugely successful or not, but it can stand out in someone's mind and be like, oh, you know, I just don't love the fact that the co-founders are married. You know, it's like a, a thing that I just don't love. But there are plenty of examples of companies with married co-founders that went on to build gigantic businesses. And there are plenty of apartments that have had bug problems <laughs> that you know have been fixed in the past. But yeah. given the opportunity to stew on these little details and hear more things, you're like, you know what? It's not perfect. I'm going to pass. If that apartment owner, that house owner that was trying to rent to you was like, hey, send this to any of your friends in D.C., Ask them what the neighborhood's like. I'm sure you're going to find out that it's it's one of the best neighborhoods in D.C. right now, the best deals. Um, right. Look, a lot of people are interested right now. I really like you, Olivia. You seem like you'd be a great renter, but we really don't have that much time. You have three days to decide. That is actually a dynamic where, okay, she's, she's adding credibility to the process by asking you to get a check mm-hmm. from your friend. If your friend comes back and says, oh, I actually love, oh, that, that listing looks great. <laughs> that neighborhood looks great. Yeah. And then she puts a deadline on you. The outcome of your apartment search might have been very different. Uh, so um, okay. we're going down a rabbit hole, but I, I really think it's a great analogy. No, I think that's really helpful. And it does make me wonder if that's one practical piece of advice you give founders. Do you tell them to put a deadline on investor decisions even if it's like a false deadline like just to, just because it's the it's beneficial to the dynamic 100% you know, dead, deadlines are a really really powerful thing 
honestly, in any business engagement because deadlines just help people prioritize when yeah, you're thinking about totally. your opportunity, whether it's an investment opportunity or and ask for a piece of advice or some sort of help. You're like, hey, Olivia, can you give me feedback on this new podcast episode as soon as you can? As soon yeah. as you can means something different to different totally. people, right? As soon as you can could be two months from now for you because I know you're busy, Olivia. But if I say, <laughs> hey, Olivia, would love feedback on this like new piece of content, if you could give me notes by Friday, that yeah. would be great. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, well, now I have to think about all the things I have to do before Friday, and Jason's asked me for this by Friday, I'll pop this to the top. Within fundraising, you, know, you wanna be putting deadlines around people because one, you need them to be making decisions quickly, and two, you need to show that the, you have the ability to put a deadline because more people are interested in, in this than just you, so the mm -hmm. timeline can't be dictated by them. There are other people ready and and willing willing and ready to go so uh, it's a bit of an interesting dynamic because you know you use the term false deadline and it's not that it's a false deadline it's just that it's a deadline with no teeth right like if you miss the deadline it's not like you wouldn't talk to me anymore right it's like yeah. we, we've, we've put an artificial deadline out there and i want you to hold i want to hold you to it i want to hold the other investors to it but if everyone went past the deadline, you'd be like, ah, oh, you know, we, we decided to extend the deadline or, or allow people to continue doing their diligence. Let's talk again. But the deadline is very powerful, very, very effective. I have one more question, which is that you have founded two companies, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's just say like for your, I don't know, whichever one you feel like was more successful and like whichever term sheet in whatever round you felt like was a massive win? Like, do you have, does one come to mind? Yeah. Okay. What season was that? Like, what month was that? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I'd done, I'd, I did everything. I engineered it perfectly. I started sort of warm-up conversations, getting people aware of the fact that we were out there and we were thinking of fundraise, fundraising right around the August period of time. Okay. And that was a, that was great because August is at the very end of summer vacation. Mm -hmm. So this was ah. back in 2017. So some investors are coming back. They're available for like light conversations. And then when I was like, okay, we're fundraising, we're actually fundraising. We're going to do our meetings in this week. It was like September 1. Mm -hmm. And we kind of drove to completion within a month. Um, yeah, and so I I executed that um, exactly how I would have coached any other founder to. Do you tell a lot of founders that August is a good month to get started? Is that like common advice? Yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, what dictates when you go fundraise is more just the situation that your company is in. So mm. it's not going to be like, hey, let's change everything so that we raise in January <laughs> okay. or or August or you know March right before summer vacation. But if there is flexibility in like a week or two or a month, like a lot of founders are asking, should I go fundraise now? And like, if you have to fundraise now, go out and raise and try to close this up before Christmas vacation, before the, you know, the 19th-ish. But if you have flexibility, you should hold your breath and get ready to start right when you come back from the new year break. 
Thanks so much for listening. There are tons of insights that each founder we cover on Funded has around startups, fundraising, and life. And we don't have time to cover it all. So if you'd like to get a free insights pack based on Emily Rasmussen from Grapevine, go to fundedpod.com grapevine. If you're looking for more insights, strategies, and support around fundraising, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at fundedpod.com newsletter. And find me on social. I'm at J-A-Y-E-H. That's J-A-Y-Y-E-H on almost every platform. I respond to newsletter replies and DMs, so hit me up. This episode was produced by Olivia Reingold. Hello. Thanks also to John Lee from Adamant Ventures. Hello, friends. And thanks to Emily Rasmussen from Grapevine for taking time away to speak with me and for dedicating her life to building a business with such a positive impact on the world. It's fun to see people doing well by doing good. As always, one last thanks to our sponsor, Docsend, the most trusted document sharing platform.